Hello everybody. Do you have an idea for a true crime podcast? I publish true crime podcasts at my YouTube channel, Leader One Studios. I currently have 23,000 subscribers who are always looking for new true crime podcasts to listen to. This is an opportunity to build an audience quickly. If you're interested in joining the Leader One Podcast Network, send an email to morgansvariety at gmail.com and we can discuss the details. Hello everybody. Gratitude to everybody for listening and additional heaps of gratitude to everybody who donates to the Patreon account. You keep the show going with your donations. As I keep the expenses paid, the more content I can create. You can donate at www.patreon.com slash leader1. Or, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can send one through PayPal at morganrector331 at hotmail.com. Remember, there is no minimum donation, no maximum donation. If $1 a month is all you feel like you can manage, especially in these difficult times, it's still appreciated. Thank you for everything, and enjoy the show. Monsters. This is episode two of The Long Shadow. Case number one The murder of Ayanna Kassian. The victim, Ayanna Kassian, was born in Ukraine in January 27th, 1986. Before she emigrated to the United States on a student visa where she settled in Los Angeles, she was a prosecuting attorney. The perpetrator, Blake Libel grew up in Toronto's Tony Forest Hill District. He eventually moved to Los Angeles, where he lived off a trust fund of $18,000 a month. When his mother died, he inherited the lion's share of her estate, which included her Forest Hill house. He netted a payday of $5.5 million from the sale of the house. In 2010, Libel published a graphic novel he created in the horror genre called Syndrome. The plot concerned a doctor's pursuit of isolating the root of evil in the human brain. He carries out experiments on a serial killer. The images are splattered with blood and gore. May 2016 Yana returned to Libel's apartment to speak to him. She was due to return to her mother's apartment afterwards, or at least to call her to let her know she would be spending the night at Blake's home. When Ayanna failed to return home or call, her mother reported her missing. The police paid a visit to Libel's apartment. When they arrived, they found he was not exactly receptive to their presence. In fact, he barricaded himself in by placing bedding and furniture at the door. 
Anyone who is this anxious to hide something from the police usually has a terrible secret. It wasn't one the police were keen to give up on, and ultimately Libel surrendered and let them in. What the officers encountered as they examined the bedroom was about as horrific as the scenes illustrated in Syndrome. In fact, it has been said that the passages depicting murder in Syndrome were imitated during Iana's final hours of life. The bedroom was awash in Iana's blood. She was sprawled out on a mattress that was stained with a large and deeply absorbed splotch of blood. A comforter bearing a graphic of Mickey Mouse lay nearby. The coroner, Dr. James Ribe, described the horrors in more detail based on his findings from the autopsy. Cassian's entire scalp was traumatically absent and was not found, was not present with the body. Her skull had been stripped down to the surface of the bone. There was no scalp present except for little bits in the back of the neck. Portions of the right side of her face were torn away, including the right ear and part of the posterior face on the right side, all the way down to the jawline. There were quite a number of bruises and abrasions on the face, primarily on the left side, the left cheek, and left jaw area, a number of bruises and abrasions, including one which turned out to be a human bite mark. She had lived for at least eight hours approximately after receiving the scalp injury and the bruise to the collarbone. I have never seen this before, and I doubt if hardly any forensic pathologists in this country or abroad have even seen this outside of, perhaps, wartime. So it's extremely rare. June 20th, 2018. Blake Libel was convicted of first-degree murder, torture, and aggravated mayhem. June 26th, 2018. Blake Libel was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Case number two, babysitter from hell, Ashley Dack. Ashley Dack lived in Texas and worked as a geologist for an oil company. Her boyfriend, Patrick Schoenman, worked in the same field. Ashley often volunteered to babysit for friends. They assumed she was doing this to alleviate financial pressure and provide the reassurance that the person minding their children could be trusted. Dak was arrested after bragging to a friend about the sexual impropriety she visited upon one of the children she minded. Her friend didn't find it nearly as amusing, and certainly not titillating, for they notified police. Dak's charges as a sex offender are dated back to 2012. Her text messages to Patrick Schoenman were introduced as evidence. In one exchange, she shared with him her fantasy to kidnap a girl as young as four years old and bring her to his car to abuse. Within the framework of this scenario, they would both rape the girl. She said nobody would be able to hear it as Dak would hold the girl down by her neck. July 10th, 2013. Patrick texted Ashley, saying, Gonna get our picks tonight? 
Dak's response was a photo of her digitally penetrating a female minor vaginally. Patrick said, Best ever seen. Thank you so much for my gift. Sweet dreams. October 2014. Dak sent some of the incriminating messages to the friend who turned her in. One of Ashley's friends was shocked to find out that she could be involved in something so morally wrong and destructive to children. As she put it, When I heard, I was in disbelief. There's no way. There's got to be some misunderstanding. I would never see her as doing that. She seemed perfectly normal. I mean, when people had kids, wanted a night out or whatever, she'd be the person to volunteer to take care of them. She'd make friends with professors and family, and it wasn't uncommon for her to watch people's kids as a favor, and nobody would think twice. Both Ashley and Patrick's residences were searched by police. After examining text records from an iPhone, the following exchange was documented and admitted as evidence. Dak, there is a little girl at lunch with blonde pigtails, kept dancing around on the floor. Wanted you to be hiding in my car, and I could bring her to you. Maybe four. Shunman. Would love that. Would you join us, or leave us alone? Dak. Join you. We could use the seat belt to hold her down, and wrap around her neck so she couldn't wiggle, because it would get tighter and tighter. Shunman. She'd be so scared. Dak. But no one could hear her if we were in my car. Shunman, I would hold her neck and head as you pulled her pants off. A photo of Dak molesting an 11-year-old child was found. Both Dak and Shunman were charged with super-aggravated child assault. The sentence for that offense is 2 to 20 years in state prison, a maximum fine of $10,000, and lifetime sex offender registration. Sexual performance by a child under 14 can result in a prison term of 10 months. Case number three, cult leader Rock Theriot. Part one, the demon seed. Rock Theriot was born on May 16, 1947 in Saguenay, Quebec, Canada, to a Francophone family. He was raised in Tetford Mines. Though he was adjudged highly intelligent, he dropped out of school in grade 7. He assumed he could glean a more quality education by studying the Bible, with a singular focus on the Old Testament. Terrio became convinced that the end of the world was nigh, and that it would be instigated by a war between the good and the evil. He rejected his family's Catholic faith and converted to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was a stickler, abiding by the religion's holistic dogma, which insisted upon a healthy lifestyle. Such recreational indulgences like junk food and tobacco were verboten. Part 2. The Cliff-Bound Shepherd Charismatic and confident of his beliefs, Terrio convinced some of the devotees of a religious fellowship to join him in leaving their jobs and homes to form a parallel society. Their religious beliefs would form the foundation of their commune's culture, 
It was to be an enclave where they would practice what Terio preached. To be more precise, Terio was forming a cult, and it was established in 1977 in Sainte-Marie, Quebec. Terio's vision was of a place where his followers would assemble to hear his speeches, be free of sin, and live in unified harmony with one another. His most loyal devotees found this appealing, and soon flocked with him to begin their new lives in Sainte-Marie. Life as Rocterio's flock soon took a dark turn. He became autocratic, quick to exact harsh discipline on anyone who did not follow his orders down to the last letter. For instance, he embodied the classic cult stereotype when he forbade all members from keeping in contact with their families. He also severed ties with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, insisting at this point that the Seventh-day Adventist vision was incompatible with his ideal of freedom, as he saw it. Terrio became fanatical about the end of the world. He claimed God himself warned him about it and gave him a specific date, February 1979. The commune was prepared for this date. One way they prepared was by moving. In 1978, they migrated to a mountainside he dubbed Eternal Mountain, in the district of St. Jogues, close to the Gaspé Peninsula. He told his flock it was there where they would all be saved. After they all settled, Terio rested while all his followers constructed a town for the commune to live in. He compared them to ants working in an ant hill. This led him to naming the cult the Ant Hill Kids. February 1979. Alas, the apocalypse did not occur. Terio's devotees began to question his dogma. He defended himself by saying that earth time and God's sense of time were incongruous and that God likely miscalculated. To build the cult's numbers, Terrio reserved for himself exclusive mating privileges, declaring the cult's women off-limits to the other males. He married and impregnated all the female members. He sired over 20 children with nine women. By the time the 80s rolled around, there were 40 members. Among the many ways in which members were expected to prove their equality to other members and devotion to the cult was by wearing matching tunics. 1984. The Anthill children relocated to a site near Burnt River, Ontario, which is now a part of the city of Kawartha Lakes. Part 3. From Purgatory to Hell Rocterio had been a problem drinker for a long time, and his addiction had become more troublesome than ever. He became more dictatorial toward his flock, and irrational when it came to his beliefs. New rules were created. For one, members were not permitted to speak to one another when Terrio was not present. They were also not allowed to have sex with one another without his consent. Terrio employed his charisma when behaving in increasingly abusive and erratic ways. It worked. His devotees never questioned his judgment or blamed him for any of the abuse he inflicted on them, whether it be physical, emotional, psychological, or sexual. 
If Rock suspected a member was straying from the fold, he would punish them by spying on them and then telling them God told him what they had done. If someone was fed up with life as an anthill kid and expressed a desire to leave, Terrio would inflict one or more of the following punishments on them. Hit them with a belt. Hit them with a hammer. Suspend them from the ceiling. Pluck every one of their body hairs, one at a time. Defecate on them. One way the cult raised money was by selling baked goods. Members who underperformed in this area were just as likely to be punished. The punishments became even worse over time. Some examples. Making them break their own legs with sledgehammers. Sitting on the heated burners of stoves. Getting shot in the shoulder. Being forced to eat dead mice. Being forced to eat excrement. Sometimes members were pushed by Terrio to prove their loyalty to the cult by any means necessary. For instance, a follower might be asked to cut off another member's toes with wire cutters. The children were not spared this brutality. Some highlights of the tortures that were inflicted on the children. Sexual abuse. Being dangled over fires. Being nailed to trees so that other children could throw stones at them. One account has it that one of his wives left a newborn child outdoors during the winter to die from exposure, feeling that this was a better fate than being subjected to the abuse other children experienced. At some point, Rock Terrio realized the cult had strayed too far from its original mandate, and he backpedaled, putting his followers through a rigorous purification regimen. The regimen consisted of having them stripped nude, whereupon he would whip and beat them. Exploiting his followers' belief that he was legitimately divine, he began to perform surgical procedures on members who were ill. Not only did Terrio have no medical training whatsoever, but the patient's conditions did not require the surgical intervention to which they were subjected. Nevertheless, he decided to prove to them that he had healing powers. One such so-called surgery involved injecting a 94% ethanol solution into their stomachs. He also performed circumcision on both children and adults. 1987. After the living conditions and cultural sensibility of the Ant Hill kids came to light, social workers removed the children from the cult. Rock Terrio was not penalized for his abuse of the children or any other followers at this time. 1989. Ant Hill member Solange Boyard complained to Rock that she had an upset stomach. He performed one of his amateur surgeries. He did not administer anesthesia. He had her disrobe and lay on a table. He punched her in the stomach and followed up by forcing a plastic tube into her rectum. He gave her an enema with olive oil and molasses. He cut her abdomen open with a knife and tore part of her intestines off with his bare hands. Another member, Gabrielle Lavallee, 
was ordered to stitch her up using a needle and thread. She got another woman to shove a tube down Solange's throat and blow in it. The next day, Solange Boyard died from the damage that was done by the medical procedures. Theriot claimed he had the power to resurrect the dead. He demonstrated this power by boring a hole into Solange's skull with a drill. According to Theriot's warped logic, the next appropriate step was to have male members join him in the business of ejaculating into the cavity he made. Shockingly, Solange didn't come back to life. She was buried a short distance from the commune. Gabrielle Lavalle suffered horrific abuse in the commune throughout the late 1980s. Her vagina was burned with a welding torch. A hypodermic needle was broken off in her back. Eight of her teeth were removed by force. Gabrielle tried to escape following an incident when Terrio cut off parts of her breast and bludgeoned the side of her head with the blunt side of an axe. When she returned, he commemorated the occasion by doing the following. Cut one of her fingers off with wire cutters. Pinned her hand to a wooden table with a hunting knife. Severed her arm with a cleaver. Gabrielle fled the commune once again that year, only that time she didn't return. She notified authorities about what Rock Terrio had done to her, and he was arrested. Having been the scum that held the commune together, the anthill kids dissolved as a community. Rock Terrio was found guilty of assault for amputating Gabrielle Lavalle's arm. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison. During his time in prison, he was visited by some of the remaining female members and the children he had with them. He managed to sire four more children with these women during that time. Based on the findings of Gabrielle Lavier's affidavit, the Ant Hill children were investigated more in depth. In 1993, Terrio pled guilty to second-degree murder after his role in the killing of Solange Boyard came to light. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. 2002. Rock Terrio applied for parole, but was rejected, as he was considered to be at a very high risk of reoffending. He never applied again. February 26, 2011. Rock Terrio was murdered by his cellmate, Matthew Gerard MacDonald. MacDonald stabbed him in the neck with a shiv. Having finished with that task, he walked up to the guards' station, handed them the shiv, and said, That piece of shit is down on the range. Case number four. The untimely and undeserved demise of Elisa Izquierdo. Part one. Nascency. Elisa Izquierdo was born on February 11th, 1989, in Brooklyn, New York. Her father, Gustavo, was a Cuban immigrant with aspirations to become a dance teacher. Her mother, Awilda, was of Puerto Rican heritage and a native to Brooklyn. Gustavo and Awilda met at a homeless shelter two years before Elisa was born. Gustavo was working there as a caterer and custodian. 
Awilda was staying there temporarily due to having been evicted from her apartment due to her rent falling to arrears. She and her previous common-law husband, Ruben Rivera, had two children together, but Awilda's addiction to crack ate into the couple's finances. She lost custody of her children, and they were sent to live with their relatives in January 1989. Awilda smoked crack while she was pregnant, and as a result, Elisa was born with an addiction of her own. This prompted social workers to notify the city's Child Welfare Administration services. Due to Awilda's inability to bring her addiction under control, full custody of Elisa was awarded to Gustavo. It was his first experience as a parent. Gustavo stepped up and devoted himself to Elisa's care to the best of his ability. He even attended parenting classes and sought advice from relatives on how to best care for his daughter. He was a devoted and doting father, commemorating all of Elisa's milestones as they came. As one family friend put it, she was his life. He would always say she was his princess. 1990. Elisa was enrolled in a Montessori preschool. However, Gustavo's health deteriorated soon after, and he was unable to pay the tuition. Elisa had a natural aptitude, and Gustavo's exceptional parenting paid off. One of the school's patrons, Prince Michael of Greece, was charmed by Elisa when she ran up to him and leapt into his arms. She stayed by his side for the rest of his visit. He was so taken with her, he paid her tuition. She thanked him with a handwritten note, and they stayed in touch, with him sending her little gifts and her sending him letters and drawings in return. Part 2. Descent of an Angel It was also in 1990 when a social worker signed an affidavit that stated Awilda overcame her addiction and obtained a unit in a social housing complex in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. She married a janitor named Carlos Lopez, with whom she was expecting her fourth child. Their daughter, Taisha, was born in December of that year. She was awarded custody of her two eldest children. November 1991. Awilda Lopez was granted the right to have unsupervised visits with Elisa. She had custody every second weekend. According to Awilda's two oldest children, Elisa was beaten and neglected by her mother and Carlos during these visits. Her children did not report these incidents to the authorities. It was about this time that Gustavo and Elisa's teachers noticed bruises and other markings on her after her visits with the Wilda. One of the injuries was found on her genitalia. At one point, Elisa reported that a Wilda hit her repeatedly and locked her in a closet. She did not wish to see her mother again. Gustavo said that she became incontinent about this time. She would have nightmares whenever she was informed that she was to have a visitation with her mother, even if the visits were very brief. A friend of the family observed that when Elisa returned from her mother's home, she would vomit and refuse to go into bathrooms. 1992 Gustavo and Elisa's teachers reported the abuse to which Elisa was subjected by her mother and stepfather to authorities. 
Elisa herself divulged to a social worker that she was experiencing abuse in her mother's home. Gustavo applied to have Awilda's visitation rights revoked. The courts ruled that the visitation rights could continue, provided that Awilda agree to never again assault or harm her daughter in any way. 1993. Gustavo made plans to return to Cuba and bring Elisa with him. He went as far as to purchase plane tickets. A date for departure was set for May 26, 1994. That same month, Gustavo was admitted to hospital with acute respiratory complications, which was later diagnosed as lung cancer. He succumbed to his illness on the 26th. Whenever Elisa asked Awilda where her father was, Awilda would scream, Your father's dead! When Phyllis Bryce, the director of Elisa's school, heard about Gustavo's death, she contacted a family court judge and strongly advised against awarding full custody to Awilda. She mentioned the record of abuse that had so greatly concerned herself and other members of the school's staff. They felt she would not be safe in Awilda's home. After hearing of Gustavo's death, Awilda immediately applied for full and permanent custody of Elisa. Initially, she was granted temporary custody. Alarmed by this turn of events, Elsa Canavzeras, cousin to Gustavo and Elisa, challenged the ruling and applied for custody of Elisa. She argued that the past history of abuse rendered Awilda an unfit parent and undeserving of custody. In the event that Elsa would be awarded custody, Prince Michael of Greece said he would continue to pay Elisa's tuition. Elsa was unable to foot the legal bill for this motion, whereas the Legal Aid Society and a federally funded parenting program covered Awilda's legal fees. At the hearing, Awilda's representative cited her so-called valiant efforts to sidestep a relapse into addiction as grounds for being awarded full custody. They also lied and said that caseworkers visited the Lopez residence and that Elisa very much wanted to live with her mother. Awilda's lawyer criticized Elsa for having, quote, the nerve to take Elisa from her biological mother. Elsa's response was that the nerve was born of fear for Elisa's safety. September 1994, Judge Greenbaum granted permanent custody of Elisa Izquierdo to Awilda Lopez. After Elisa was reassigned to Awilda's home permanently, she withdrew her from the Montessori school. As a student of public school, Elisa was remembered as being introverted, emotionally unstable, uncommunicative, and struggling with urinary incontinence. The principal observed that she frequently presented with bruises, walked with an awkward gait, and her hair had been torn out in different places, leaving bald patches. March 14, 1995. A letter sent by an anonymous party was received by the Manhattan Child Welfare Authorities. The writer stated that Awilda had been butchering Elisa's hair. She had also taken to locking Elisa in a dark room for long periods of time. Six days after receipt of this letter, Elisa was admitted to hospital for treatment of a fractured shoulder. 
the wound was left untreated for three days. The staff of Public School 126 were concerned about Elisa as she continually presented with evidence of abuse. They reported their findings to the Manhattan Child Welfare Authorities. The organization's response to the school was that the concerns were, quote, not reportable, unquote, due to a lack of direct evidence of child abuse or neglect. As a result of this ruling, the report was rejected. It didn't help that Elisa was monitored by a court-ordered caseworker. After the report was submitted and a home visit by the school staff was undertaken, Awilda withdrew Elisa from the school in December. She didn't enroll her in any other school. By this time, Awilda had had six children. She was an abusive mother, but Elisa was the recipient of most of her hostility. Now that Elisa was no longer attending school, Awilda was free to torture her with relative impunity. Elisa was frequently locked in her bedroom. She was not allowed to socialize with her siblings. She never left the apartment. She was not allowed to use the toilet. She relieved herself in a chamber pot. Neighbors recalled hearing Elisa being beaten and abused in other ways. They would hear Elisa begging Awilda for mercy, saying things like, Mommy, Mommy, please stop. No more. I'm sorry. Some of their neighbors reported their suspicions of abuse to child welfare authorities, but no action was taken. Other neighbors were keenly aware of the nature of the abuse, but failed to take action. They remembered Awilda referring to Elisa as mongoloid and a, quote, filthy little whore, unquote feeling she was under the spell of her father. A representative of the federally funded parenting program that endorsed Awilda's motion to be granted sole custody of Elisa received a report from Awilda. She complained about Elisa's incontinence, her tendency to cut out clumps of her hair, and a tendency to drink from the toilet. This rep contacted the Manhattan Child Welfare Authorities, but once again, a request to investigate was denied. Awilda and Carlos were known to have inflicted the following tortures on Elisa. Punching, kicking, forcing her to eat her own feces, forcing her to drink ammoniated water, mopping the floor with Elisa's head and face, burning her on her head, face, lips, and other parts of her body, raping her vaginally and anally with objects such as a hairbrush or toothbrush, dropping a chest of drawers on her ring finger and toe. November 15th, Carlos Lopez was in jail due to a parole violation. A week later, on the 22nd, Awilda placed a call to one of her sisters, Mercy Torres. She told her Elisa was, quote, like retarded on the bed, unquote. Fluid was leaking from Elisa's nose and mouth. She also told Mercy that Elisa refused food and drink. Mercy told her to take Elisa to the hospital. Awilda's response? I'll think about it. She promised to meditate on that concern after washing the dishes. The next morning, Awilda asked a neighbor to view Elisa's body, which showed no signs of life at this point. 
They told Awilda to call the police. Awilda refused. The neighbor called the police and requested an ambulatory response. As she did so, Awilda threatened to commit suicide. While Wilda was in custody, she admitted to throwing Elisa into a concrete wall head first two days before she contacted her neighbor about her condition. She said Elisa neither walked nor talked after the incident. The autopsy presented the complete list of Elisa's injuries at the time of her death. Broken fingers with one phalanx protruding through the skin. A broken toe. Internal organ damage. Deep welts, burns on her head, face, and body. Trauma to the genitalia and rectum, including tearing. Thirty circular marks were found on her body, which were caused by being struck by someone who was wearing a ring. The injuries were found to have been inflicted over a long period of time. November 29th, the day of Elisa's funeral. The service was conducted by Reverend Gianni Augustinelli, who noted that not only was Elisa murdered by her own mother, but also by the, quote, silence of many, by the neglect of child welfare institutions, and the moral mediocrity that has intoxicated our neighborhoods. Among the attendees were relatives, neighbors, politicians, Prince Michael of Greece, and members of the general public who were moved by the case. Elisa was buried with a Barbie doll given to her by her father, which was one of her prized possessions. Mourners placed such items as flowers, toys, stuffed animals, and sympathy notes in and on the coffin. The following inscription was made on her gravestone. World, please watch over the children. June 25, 1996. Awilda Lopez pleaded guilty to a charge of second-degree murder. Part of her plea deal stipulated that she would be eligible for parole after serving 15 years in prison. A month later, Judge Schlesinger sentenced Awilda to a term of 15 years to life imprisonment. Before the sentence was passed down, he had this to say about the child welfare system of New York City. We have not created procedures to do everything necessary to protect the young and vulnerable in this society. The system has failed to protect our babies, and don't tell me how much it costs. If anything is to become of this horrendous tragedy, then it will be that we give priority to these babies. Awilda Lopez became eligible for parole in 2010. Her application was denied. She was denied parole again in July 2020. She remains incarcerated. Carlos Lopez was sentenced to serve one and a half to three years in prison. This was related to a single incident of physical abuse that occurred on October 31, 1995, when he repeatedly banged Elisa's head against a concrete wall in full view of her siblings. He pled guilty to a charge of attempted second-degree assault. Elisa's death and the outrage it engendered among the public motivated then-mayor of New York City, Rudolph Giuliani, to conduct a review of the city's child welfare system. This inspired the creation of the Administration for Children's Services. The agency is solely devoted to issues of child welfare in New York.
February 12, 1996, Governor George Pataki formally signed ELISA's law into legislation. The purpose of the law is to balance the need for accountability through public awareness and government oversight with the need for privacy of the individuals involved in child protective services cases. It ensures that every report of abuse and or neglect is documented while keeping the identities of those involved anonymous. Records are also kept, guaranteeing that the agency's response to the reports has been sufficient. Elisa's siblings were raised in separate foster homes. They were all traumatized after witnessing the abuse that was inflicted on Elisa. Commenting on a letter he wrote to the judge who awarded permanent custody to Awilda, Prince Michael said, There was a solution. There were people ready to take this child, to love this child. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.